Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! All right, so it's the end of June, suddenly. I don't know how wow. that happened. It really is. Oh my gosh. It's a weird, it's a weird time because... Because time has no meaning. Yes, and yet <laughs> somehow historic events seem to be happening every single day. Yes, so time simultaneously I'm... has extra meaning. <laughs> yes. While Today, also for example, um, <laughs> no Mississippi meaning. took the Confederate battle flag off of their flag. Yes. Yeah, they officially voted yesterday, I think. But yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything gets signed today or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that is historic and amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, there are some very moving photos of a guy who's like yeah. mayor of, I think, Laurel, Mississippi, ordering the flag to be taken down. Yeah. And he's like this, you know, he's like crying. Yeah. It was such a divisive symbol when he was young. Well, I'm sure he never thought he'd live to see the day yeah. when he would be signing an order that the flag was no longer the flag of Mississippi. I know. I felt like, right. I felt like he should have had, like, there's like one orderly standing behind him, you know? I know he's like a yeah. small town mayor or whatever, but I felt like he should have had a brass band, you know, like Beyonce style with all the high stepping and like, you know, it was a big event. Yeah, They should celebrate. They really yeah. should. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most people never thought they'd live to see the day. No. I remember Daily Show episodes from Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. It's got to be 10 years ago, maybe more than that. Right. So, because it, it came up again a few years ago, what, four years ago or so? Yeah. With Charleston, Charles, South Carolina, yeah. and South Carolina did pull down their flag. But, I mean, actually, right, Brie Newsom climbed mm -hmm. up and pulled it down, but South Carolina did officially, eventually yeah. decide not to fly it. But Mississippi, of course, famously has never changed its mind. And so some time ago when they voted on it, maybe 10, 12 years ago or something, I remember the Daily Show's <laughs> commentary surrounding the event. And it was both hilarious and very satirical, and I don't know if we'll be able to um, link to it, because most of the Jon Stewart stuff isn't online anymore. Oh. But it was brilliant. We'll see if we can. But it was also very much a reminder of what seemed to be these sort of insurmountable obstacles that you just knew had to fall sometime. But it makes me think of the way I think our parents probably thought about the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. Right? Everyone thought that it would be up long past the time they were dead. And it ended up not being for, up for very long at all, right. actually. <laughs> right? You know, comparatively, right? A um, couple decades. But, you know, plenty of people who saw it go up saw it came down. Right? So it wasn't, you know, it's still terrible in many ways, but it was not the sort of perpetual centuries-long division that many people, I think, expected yeah. somehow. Um, but definitely, I think, yeah, the sort of shock that... <laughs> That that time came. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you held on for like, what are we at? Over 150 years since. Yeah, what, 155 yeah. or so? So you hold right, on that long. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to point yeah. out, though, that somebody has already gone onto the flags of the United States Wikipedia page and taken Mississippi down. Fantastic. And taken it off of like the big picture showing every state with its flag on the state. Brilliant. Yeah. They took Brilliant. care of it. 
Yep. Good. And now Mississippi can find a new flag at its leisure. Yes. Leisure. Yeah. Um, but you were saying, yeah, Madison has also had definitely some interesting goings on. Decolonized? No. What I do want to say is that I feel like there have been some statues pulled down. Some people got pretty upset about losing a statue of a Norwegian guy that they didn't know his name until they found out it had been pulled down. Um, (laughs) But there was, like, I feel like there has been some response from the city that that the police are being less intrusive into the protests and more trying to keep people safe than clashing with protesters and it Good. it well because the reason right that it happened because officially right that guy was supposed to be an abolitionist yeah. I have not looked into it but um and then also a, a democratic lawmaker was being, yes right well and I don't it seemed to be the, at least. Yes, I don't know. right. But it seemed to be the the protest stemmed from the arrest of a man who was essentially, I think, arrested sort of for trespassing yeah. or for annoying people at an outdoor restaurant or something. Um, he went into the restaurant to yeah. yell at somebody through his bullhorn, and he was ah, carrying a baseball bat also. Right. And, right. The, like, I only saw the video of the arrest, which was really upsetting, and then... As the other details came out, it felt like, well, I mean, you know, if somebody follows you around screaming at you with a baseball bat, it does feel kind of intimidating. Yes. Yes. And he's been charged with extortion because apparently he was going around, like, telling businesses if they didn't give him money, he'd break their windows during a riot or something. Oh, wow. Which is... So there you go. (laughs) But... It does feel like right. the Madison School Board has ended their police contracts. There's been some movement. Like I feel Good. like wow. I feel like the protests are making some headway. And yes. it's it feels yeah. like gosh, we should have done this, you know, twenty years ago and not right. have to do it now because Madison prides ourselves on being so progressive. Right. But um A, we're not. And B <laughs> Yeah. Uh, better to take it on now than to, for people, you know, in some cities, the right. police and the city have really closed ranks and they're not interested in making any sort of considerations or concessions. So, yes. Yeah. And I think even for Madison, right, the, it's not necessarily that the man wasn't being threatening or any of those things, but also just, um, that when the police arrest somebody, right, um, that, I suppose the manner in which that person is arrested matters now, right? Yeah. As it should, of course. Yeah. And it's interesting because apparently they put him in the cop car. He escaped out the other side of the car. They caught him again. Oh, wow. And he was shouting, I think he was shouting, I can't breathe. So they took him to the hospital to be medically cleared. Ah. So good for them. So the video a- was still, like, Sorry. really upsetting because there's, right. like, five cops cuffing this guy and, like, a right. bunch of onlookers shouting at them and whatever. But. Right. Right. But, you know, that idea that um, there should be not just procedures, right? But it should be accepted that there are just certain things you do and don't do, right? And that's yeah. what it is. Right? And ultimately, yeah. I mean, if someone runs away... You just sort of put out a bulletin or whatever it is they do, and 
Mm-hmm. You find them eventually. I mean, right? Like, you like, always have to. You always have you know. to replace anybody in these stories with like, what if it were me? You know, like right. what if it was a relatively small white lady doing right. the shouting? Like that probably would not have had five cops in riot gear handcuffing me. Right. As much as I would like to think that of myself. Right. <laughs> you know, um, and I think that definitely speaks to some of the larger issues at stake. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that, you know, you do take someone to the hospital and all of those things, right? That those become automatic procedure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. As so they're well trying as, to find yeah. some balance, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Fewer people, less violence. If somebody runs, let them go. You know, yeah. the basics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the idea that, yeah, cities should start taking, I think someone posted online the budget of the city of Cleveland, um, mm-hmm. I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but, and, you know, it shows like all the resources of the city, like the DMV, whatever, like all the things the city spends money on. And then suddenly the graph for the budget for the police department is so, yeah. I mean, it looks like the others don't get any money at all, which comparatively they don't, like maybe a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand, mm-hmm. whatever. And then some millions for the police department, right? And, um, yeah, just a little bit of redistribution to sort of mental health services, you know, social work, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Have social workers in every high school, <laughs> right? Mental health professionals in every high school instead of the police. And right. Just these sort of basic mm-hmm. shifts in mentality. Yeah. Yes. Which is, all right, basically what we are talking about this time around, shifting yeah. our mentality. Um, so last time we sort of defined what it means to decolonize the Middle Ages, but really sort of generally, right? Decolonize the way we think of history, the way institutions should be decolonized mm-hmm. <laughs> as a whole, right? All yes. institutions. So ways ways of changing our mindset so that the white, I mean, primarily male, uh, cis, heterosexual, normative, whatever um, narrative that we've always sort of read is right. not the primary one that we favor with others like often you weigh other narratives against this you know dead white guy narrative as the truth right and then so if you have some other historical source that says uh we won the battle and the dead white guys are like no they they were routed and they ran away or whatever right um people people tend to favor the dead white guy narrative Yes. So sort of rejecting that mindset. Yeah. Well, and um, there actually are some really, um, really important, famous um, issues with a, a lot of those things. When you said that specifically, of course, something we're going to talk about is North America. And it sort of brought up the idea of, um, I mean, the you know, all of the sort of colonization of the Americas, but in this case, where the United States was specifically North America, and all of the sort of battles with Native Americans, right, which we tend to think of by their, you know, colonial names. So whatever, you know, the US government named them, it's how we tend to name them. It's like basically whatever we saw in Dances with Wolves, honestly, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And this idea... Right. That, um, essentially, um, 
you know, the Battle of Little Bighorn is one of the big ones, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Also known as, unfortunately, um, Custer's Last Stand, right? And there was a there was an ice cream shop in my yes uh, the city I grew up in called yes. Custard's Last Stand in Janesville, Wisconsin. Yep. Uh, yes. Which honestly, I you know I kind of enjoy that because why not? Yeah. Yes. Make fun of him a little bit. They made good custard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent frozen custard. Yep. But yeah. Um. But. Um, and that is one of the few battles that I think we do know better by its sort of traditional name, um, mm-hmm. Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, but essentially, right, that there are Native American records of that battle, right? There are many, there are drawings, um, of course, oral history, um, but particularly the drawings in what are known as ledger books, right? All of these ledger drawings. Um, that's a way that uh, Native Americans recorded history um, that is really sort of interesting and intertextual because it's essentially, right, taking this European tool, which is the book, the text, something we'll probably talk about more in this episode, um, mm-hmm. and recording their history in it and on it, right? So in some ways, yeah. it creates this history, Native American history, as a part of the European record, um, except, of course, it still tends to have been ignored. But, right, recent recently, so sort of the past couple decades, um, as people have taken, and by people, of course, right, institutions, academia, white scholars, mm-hmm. or even just academia um, acknowledging Native American scholars, um, but looking at these records, looking at the Native American um, views and perspectives of these histories, right? And so in this case, right, like the Battle of Little Bighorn, um, their version of the story, their history. Um, and recently, there are a couple of women, um, and one in particular, one or two in particular, but um, who are credited with having essentially um, killed or struck the last blow against Custer. Um Oh, interesting. Yeah, Buffalo Calf Road Woman is one of them. Um, we'll link to the Wikipedia page. There's a great um, picture of the ledger book with her. Um, and she's supposedly knocked him off his horse. Um, or the one who mm-hmm. struck the last blow before he fell off his horse and died. Um, but so also women warriors, right, who were important. Um, and she's part of the oral history and has been a part of their oral history for a very long time. You know, since it happened, which is what a hundred and forty something years, because mm-hmm. it happened in eighteen seventy six, I think. Um, but anyway, well, that recently, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, a you know, because Custer fought in the Civil War famously, and um, was fairly reckless there as well, although he got he managed to survive it. I mean, <laughs> um, right. But you know, yeah, it caught up with him not that long later. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, so the sort of extent to which um, a lot of these things have been hopefully reincorporated, start to become reincorporated in the history of how we think of this country, right? Um, but yeah, that's a big one. Ledger, um, the sort of ledger drawings um and i was gonna say we we're gonna repeat because we're talking about north america repeat what we did last time as well i think um that you right are recording on the land of the ho-chunk nation 
Um, and yeah. I'm recording the land with the Powhatan Confederacy. Um, and that it can seem like sort of empty words to say this, right? It's become more common, though. Hopefully, some of our listeners have been to places where you've seen plaques or heard announcements or something that tell you these mm-hmm. things, right? Um, we talked last time about right uh, restoring traditional names to places. So what is the James River? Was the Powhatan River, for example? Um, and it's important, I think, to think about these things, because that idea of shifting mindset, right, the more we restore these names and restore the places, um, the more we sort of shift our mindset from thinking of the Americas, but particularly, right, North America, the US and Canada, um, the more we shift from having thought of them as kind of these empty wildernesses that had nothing going on until, you know, Jamestown or whatever. Um, or, yeah. you know, the Spanish, <laughs> although we've kind of raised them as well, but um, the Dutch, that changing that narrative, right, so that we recognize that our history lies on top of but is also deeply integrated with Native history, right? Um, and that, mm-hmm. and also that Native history is, of course, part of the present day as well. Um, so trying to shift the way we think of these things. So that is an important, important element. Yeah. And brings us... It's, mm-hmm. it's funny because uh, when you start thinking about it here in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. there are a million things named either for specific... Uh, Native Americans, um, Black Hawk, there's a Black Hawk Technical College, there's a Black Hawk Church, mm-hmm. um, there's Sauk is um, another particular, Sauk is uh, the tribe of Chief Black Hawk, right. um, and there's Sauk City, which say, is like, maybe I don't know, 30 minutes from here, yeah, yeah Sauk County, yeah. Um, and, you know, y- you can't, you almost can't go anywhere even within the city of Madison itself, without finding yourself somewhere near an Indian mound or something like that. Um, And yet, because you never have really thought about it, it's so easy to, like, totally overlook Mm -hmm. it. Like, it just blends into the background noise of, like, well, we also have places called, like, Fond du Lac or Eau Claire to remind us that the French French used to be here. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, and then we have, like, all these sort of weird fake Indian names like Mendota. Oh, right. Sure. So, yes. that, is not, that is not what the tribe called the lake. Right. But it sounds kind of like it might be. Right. Yes. But on the other hand, Miliwake, right. as noted in the uh, great uh, philosophical blockbuster of our times, Wayne's right. World, uh, <laughs> comes from... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a term meaning the good earth. So yeah, I think Chicago meant skunk cabbages or something, something. along this line. Yes, maybe that's apocryphal, but well, it's supposed to have it. Everyone's unsure if it's because of the swamp or what. <laughs> it's because yeah. of the smell, right? Yeah. The smell, yeah. but um, but yeah, I mean, I think, and that's a huge, huge thing, right? We don't learn enough about it. We don't know what's real, what isn't. Uh, when we find that things aren't we don't try necessarily try to restore them yeah i think i mentioned this before but the field museum in chicago 
Um, so the Field Museum, of course, famously started at the World's Fair, right? Columbian Exhibition. Which I just realized the other day is for Columbus. Yes. I somehow never put that. I thought it was like Columbia Coffee or right. something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, Columbia. Okay. I mean, that would still be for Columbus, right? That's where we <laughs> it was get like it. 18, right? It was 1892, yeah, I because think. Because 1492. So that's yes. why. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that, and that was the point. Like, what's happened in North America since this Hooray. date, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. And um, a, lot. a few years ago, the Field Museum actually put up this great exhibition that I teach in class. Um, I took all these pictures and I teach it that uh, specifically looks at the way in which the Field Museum itself is beholden to this exhibition, the ways in which the uh, Columbian Exposition itself was absolutely um part of the colonial experiment right so mm -hmm. um there were some famous things like um villages from around the world so they'd gone to places around the world and uh particularly right sort of alaska and these various places and sort of um you know coerced people into coming and living in these villages <laughs> yes. right as sort of human exhibits and there was at least oh they did that at the um what one of the uh, there's a big exhibition in uh i want to say in france yeah. where they had oh, i remember it they was had very you know, common. people from french indochina yeah. Yeah. yeah it was very very common at the time um but at least one village um left i have this in my notes somewhere but i wasn't knowing if we were going to talk about this actually so i didn't pull it up mm -hmm. um but at least one village yeah uh left because they they're sort of their passports or whatever sort of travel documents that sort of been taken right by the people running the exhibition overall so you couldn't just leave and go home um but you weren't getting paid the rate that they had presumably promised you you'd get paid right Ooh. right so essentially what happened is that this one village uh left <laughs> essentially <laughs> um and set up their own exhibit outside the gates oh so that people had to pay them personally Right. So they couldn't sort of just leave until their contract was over, but they still managed to get out of their contract, essentially. Right. And That's smart. Charge their own admission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there were other aspects, um, for example, right, that um, uh, African-American musicians weren't allowed in. Hmm. Um, but they were they performed outside the gates. They were. Right. So they weren't sort of allowed into the exhibition, but they were asked to perform at the gates because certain things like ragtime, which was sort of a brand new. Yeah. <laughs> at least to, you know. Yeah. Scott Joplin was. Way too um, Yeah. I just read that he was shopping an opera around in 1910. So that wasn't too long after. Yeah. No. Would have been that era. Mm hmm. Yeah. So this sort of became um, and this became the foundation, right? The film museum and the whole uh history of natural studies right what we think of as right a museum of natural history mm -hmm. um and the ways in which it conflated sort of the history of animals on earth and evolution with the history of culture right that cultural evolution was seen as a thing <laughs> right mm -hmm. and so there were sort of yeah. barbaric savage cultures so-called giant quotes, right, that led up to sophisticated cultures. So this whole very, very problematic idea. And so, yeah, the idea that 
Ragtime was sort of maybe first heard here. Um, and the extent to which, right, that all of that very problematic stuff overlaid the other famous aspect of the Field Museum and natural history, which of course isn't mm-hmm. just things like, you know, progression and evolution, but of course dinosaurs. Right? Yeah. Um, the dinosaurs are great. They've got gemstones. Yes. Honestly, not totally sure how those are, you know. Yeah. Like, nice polished gems that people donate, and you go, wow, those are pretty. It was the Labrador but... Inuit who left and set up their own village, ah. by the way. Okay. Yeah. But, yes, and so the dinosaurs, um, this was great. <laughs> of course it was great. They're phenomenal, and they're, yeah, you know. Um, and the Field Museum remains at the forefront of paleontology. Um, but Elmer Riggs, who went off and dug up stuff, which was great. Um, you know, and the, they still have a lot of these things. I mean, so, but the ways in which these were very problematically put next to each other. Um, and Franz Boas, who was a sort of leading anthropologist at the time, is one of the people who actually, he helped sort of shift this focus. So he actually, he was sort of assistant in the Fair's anthropology department at the time, um, and became the Field Museum's first anthropology creator, curator, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. and, he sort of remembered as the father, founding father of American anthropology. And he did start to shift this idea that we're not supposed to be looking at this so-called, you know, false evolution of culture. The culture doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. That there's something very different going on. Right. And so you should look at sort of data and these various studies and not rank cultures in this way that that wasn't, that was problematic. Um, And one of the fun things about him, besides that he did start the shift um, he was definitely not perfect, but he did teach Zora Neale Hurston. Oh wow! Who was herself a brilliant anthropologist? She yeah. was a great, a great writer of fiction so, too. Yes, yeah. But it's funny because she, of course, wrote her own stories, but also collected a lot of other people. Yeah, I think she writer. worked for the Work mm-hmm. Progress Administration during the Depression. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She went through the South Shield stuff. Um, she enjoyed amateur theater. Mm-hmm. Yes acting in it. Yeah, she's fascinating and amazing and awesome. Um, but yeah, he taught her and that was her degree was anthropology. Mm-hmm. So she was awesome and fantastic and, you know, also, of course, helped shift a lot of perspectives about what's meaningful. So, for example, going throughout and collecting all these stories, right, oral culture, stories from the South, something that at the time was not necessarily valued, right? Yeah. Um, and of course is now, but was not necessarily at the time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the Field Museum, so they had this great exhibit about all of this, right? Um, and about their foundations. And so the very problematic side of their foundations, they got less problematic, you know, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and the idea, right, that you can't really separate the fact, you know, why are people and dinosaurs in the same museum? <laughs> this is problematic, right? Um, and it comes from that idea that somehow... Um, Right. Why are Native American art, um, why is Native American art put in a natural history museum and not in, like, the Art Institute? Right. Right. So now, of course, it is. Right. Now it absolutely is. Um, and natural history museums have instead started to take on a focus of culture, right? Where they Mm -hmm. really look at culture. And so if you think of culture before there were humans, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Environmental. And then culture once once there were humans. Yeah. 
right? And how do these things shift? Uh, but the Field Museum completely redid its um, American wing. And they have a indigenous curator now. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, I think the Met just hired their first um, Native American curator as well. But yeah, so the 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 Field Museum just redid its whole wing with at least one, maybe a team, probably a team of, but at least, you know, definite Native American input um, and curation. And um, it was supposed to reopen, <laughs> you know, March, whatever it is, basically when everything shut down, yeah. like oh. <laughs> the, the, the teens, yeah. right? Mid-March. Yeah. So um, I had been very excited to go see what it was going to do and have not, of course, done that yet. Well, but hope springs eternal to look forward you know. to. Yes, absolutely. Twenty twenty one, March twenty twenty one, maybe. Yes, or if you know, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but um, but that's the idea. And one of the things they did, even in this original exhibit from a few years ago, where they were sort of thinking about all this, was they went back to some of the places where they had gotten um, art pieces, um, and asked contemporary artists to um, create for them pieces of art to go in the museum, mm -hmm. right, specifically, um, that would sort of be companion pieces to these, you know, previous art pieces um, that had been collected probably not very ethically. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And so that's a sort of great um, shift, obviously. Yeah. Right. Um and they do have a very interesting um, exhibit that I imagine is still or, again, part of the permanent exhibit um, on ledger art and things like that. Um, but this sort of idea, right? So all of this is a little more modern, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but this is sort of the point, right? That um, we're so used to thinking of um, the Americas, basically, as having started in 1492, Right? That's how the Columbian Exhibition thought of it. Right? Sure. <laughs> that, um, and this is obviously, obviously, obviously not true. Right? So, um, before 1492, right? 1492, right? The 1500. This is kind of what we consider the end of the Middle Ages for all sorts of reasons. But, and for, it has not always been the same reason. But, you know, as we talked about, I think, in our very first episode, nowadays it's basically because that's when you get essentially the beginning of modern globalization, right? Mm -hmm. Once Europe starts to colonize the Americas, we shift into a new era. Yeah. Um, but for the thousand years before that, as everybody is sort of ramping up, what's going on, right? Um, and I think it's one of the really important things for medievalists to think about is what was happening in the Americas. Um, so next time, we're probably going to cover sort of Asia, Africa, you know, yeah. that basically everything on those continents outside of Europe. <laughs> but also, I would say those cultures are a lot better known um, and much True. more frequently discussed by medievalists and even by people who well, are not medievalists. They're, right. I mean, better known to me because I got a master's degree in Asia, but whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Better known to like um, most people, I assume. But I think you must be right because we, you know, everyone's seen pictures of like, right ancient but you know medieval temples from like japan mm -hmm. and china and right um the sort of extraordinary sculptures and paintings we're just more accustomed right um and yet there's something about the americas 
specifically, mm -hmm. right? That we we think of them as basically being empty until Europeans yeah. got here, right? Well, I With think a few exceptions. Part of the problem, right, is that the jungle um, reclaims things really quickly. And so, at least in Southeast Asia, you, you have these really amazing temples in Angkor Wat, but a lot of that was, like, the French restoration. Like, we mm -hmm. can talk about this more next time, the ways in which they conceived of themselves as sort of, like, saving the Khmer. But, um, right. so, <laughs> when people, yes. when people go look in, you know, the various temples in the Yucatan or wherever, um, I think a lot of it still looks pretty jungly. Like, it hasn't been yeah. restored to the same extent that, um, you know, Angkor yeah. Wat. And also part of that is probably, like, French feelings about the way that you should properly manage gardens. Like, you know, if you think about Versailles, like, everything laid out in neat, yes. geometric whatever's right. versus, right. you know, who I don't have any particular exp expertise in what the Spanish would have thought, but... Um, you right. you do hear periodically about people like finding entire cities that have just been eaten by the jungle. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, really definitely. Scary. I just want to say it. There's they a lot have of found really a lot bugs. of them. <laughs> there are. Um, I remember. You know, this was a whatever documentary. There was an archaeologist talking about. Um, I think it was a sort of silly one on maybe a National Geographic channel, <laughs> something, and it was sort of like you know to what extent is Indiana Jones real mm -hmm. and. Um, because famously, he was, right, based on a guy from the University of Chicago, yeah. actually, right? So we're back to the, the Field Museum and the University of Chicago and all the stuff they pilfered from <laughs> other cultures, which was a lot. Yeah. Um, the University of Chicago has its own, what is, I think, still called Oriental Institute. I um, think so, yeah. But, yeah, but the one of the things the archaeologist said was, um, he's like, the, the animals are real, right? The snakes, the rats, the bugs. Yeah. All that stuff is real. And he's like, he's had every disease that you can get, <laughs> basically. So, you know, more than once. He's been bitten by everything, you know, that exists. Yeah. I only went into, like, the tame, touristy area of the jungle that they show in, in Vietnam. Like, they take you out to show you the, the tunnels by Kuchi. Oh, sure, right. And they there were, you know, like, centipedes 10 inches long. That's, you know, that's what it's going to be. Yeah. But that, that exact sort of idea where, um, there was someone else, uh, who worked on an island and, you know, I think this was a woman and she said that, um, there was the snake that lived there and that if you got bitten, you'd probably die within half an hour. <laughs> and the nearest hospital with the anti-venom was, you know, like basically an hour away because oh. you had to like take a boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So don't get bitten. But yes, yeah, so archaeology does have that to, you know, go for it. <laughs> At the same time, right, people do find things constantly. And there is, you know, there there are a lot of things that are very famous, of course, right? So, like, Machu Picchu is very famous yeah. at this point. Um, and obviously, the Temple I, of the Sun I would say in, uh, in uh, Tenochtitlan. Yeah. Um, yes. Apologize. Um, to all of the very nice people right. who have tried to teach me to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> yes, I believe it's Tenochtitlan. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and everyone has heard essentially, right, therefore, of, for example, the Aztecs, which is the name that sort of, that ha is made up, but is sort of used to cover that, the whole area of peoples, yeah. right, that sort of spoke 
Nahuatl. Um, and so the um, Mexica are the main people where, of course, Mexico gets its name. And they were the, you know, Tenochtitlan was their city. But the, the Inca, of course, right? People know about <laughs> the Inca and Peru. So there are some giant civilizations that people have heard of with extraordinary cities that are being restored mm -hmm. and that you can sort of go see some of. Yeah. Um, and they do absolutely find bigger cities occasionally, right? So, um, or other cities that they've been looking for that you s will stumble on. Yeah. Because, yeah, they just sort of. And the, the sort of big thing, of course, you're right, because in Europe, people could abandon cities, you know, and they're going to be there right. forever. They find I mean, some stone age you know. <laughs> houses up on, you know, the Orkney Islands or whatever. Right. And they're like, and they're maybe still a there. wet, but they're still there. Right. Yeah. Um, so there is absolutely that difference, right? And it's, it is unfortunate because we absolutely do think of, right? People will say, you know, our history here is so young. You have to go to Europe, right? right? <laughs> then you see things that are so old, right? Or Egypt. Um, it's not like you can go to cafe that was founded in the year 1000 or whatever. Right. Right. But this right? is also like very. In Italy, you sort of stumble into these places. Yes. Yeah. I've been to the oldest cafes in Italy of the, th the three or so, right? <laughs> Venice, <laughs> Venice, Rome, where's the third? Oh. Anyway. Um, but they are, I mean, that is a very specific view of what, what remains are, right? Or what civilization yeah. is, right? Um, and that idea that somehow you have to have stone, which first of all, you do. There's tons of stone. Mm -hmm. It's just that, yes, frequently gets buried, you know? Um, even in Egypt, right? The pyramids and the Sphinx all got buried at various points. I mean, Right. right. It is definitely modern tourism that keeps them <laughs> unburied by the desert, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that sort of idea, right? That somehow um, only specific things sort of count in quote unquote, right? You know, I, I read this book by Patricia Seed called um, Ceremonies of Possession mm. uh, in Europe's Conquest of the New World. And she talked about different ways that the different colonial powers sort of conceptualized when is it okay to colonize something mm -hmm. which like sounds really stupid in general because we think of them just sort of turning up and being like well we've right. got a flag let's uh put it down but they did have like ways of justifying to themselves oh, like this land is not being used yes and i know that mm -hmm. especially the british i think looked for people sort of working the land like putting up Fences, like in this very mm -hmm. specific British way of like putting up fences yep. and tilling fields and stuff like that. And I wonder how much of our conceptualization that, oh, there's no culture here before comes basically from like yeah. these ideas right. that the people who arrived and were like, well, looks clear. Let's put well, up our flag, sort of. I think what we actually yeah. have are two, two different viewpoints. First, we have the Spanish and also the Portuguese, but we're going to yeah. go with the Spanish, right? Because they paid Columbus, Ferdinand Isabella. Mm -hmm. Last time, I believe, we talked about the restoration, right? <laughs> and how you yeah. don't expect the <laughs> Spanish Inquisition, for example. Yes. Yes. And um, so the Reconquista, right? Um, they and, yeah. finish, right? So Christians under Ferdinand and Isabella, who are now married, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Christianity pushes out the remainders of the Islamic rule, which has been there for about 800 years, and um, unite Spain, they exile the Jews, so all the Jews get kicked out, um, and you, you know, and spread throughout Europe, basically. So that's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, England, which officially 
which has Jews at the time, but officially Jews are not allowed to live in England at the time, even though there are Jews living there. This is a big point of... It's not a debate, really, anymore in scholarly circles yeah. at all, because everyone knows that they're there. But for a long time, people will be like, oh, but there are no Jews in England in this period. Well, of course there are. Oh, yeah, yeah, the fact I that they're not allowed doesn't mean they're not there. It just means they're legally not allowed, but whatever. Okay. There's a famous <laughs> joke in Ulysses about yes. that. Yes. In uh, the Nestor chapter. Right. But it's the funny thing about sort of, quote unquote, illegal immigration, right? As though, yeah. you know whatever you know people are there and then you suddenly tell them they can't be there right the border suddenly moves you know texas and mexico now this is the united states whatever people aren't going anywhere they're they're staying right um, pretty much but anyhow so um so of course all these people pour in from spain uh some of them are jewish some of them are what becomes known as conversos right um that they were jewish but they've converted to christianity they're hiding Crypto Jews. Yeah, basically. Um, so this is a whole thing. But anyway, so all of this goes on. So Spain, Spain is looking to not just plant its flag, right? <laughs> but Christianize. It is looking yeah. to Christianize. Yeah, and it had a ritual, I think, where they would read their, I forget what they call it, but they had like a big document where they said, basically, you're all going to be Christian now, and anybody who objects can bring it up with us directly, and they'd read it in Spanish to the coastline. Yeah. Right? Like, they'd <laughs> shout it from their boats. Basically. Which seems unfair, but... Um, well, but then, the thing about the Spanish is, right, they marched into some of these amazing cities, right? Um, and they were floored, because uh, Tenochtitlan definitely was more extraordinary than most of Spain at the time, and they all oh, yeah. said so. You know, they all acknowledged it. <laughs> um, and so they they were definitely aware that they were in the presence of a civilization that was as civilized as theirs by most standards, mm -hmm. right? The exception being Christianity. Um, and there are a couple of really interesting things that happen. And then there are also, right, the horrific genocide. But basically what Spain did was that was their basic perspective, right? Here we have a civilization that we can make Christian. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was their goal. And so, um, yeah, so they just decimated everything. And it was sort of horrific. Um, at the same time, there were people who were who were there, who were Spanish, um, who did recognize the quality of the culture that they were destroying um, and made attempts to talk about some of it, write some of it down, save some of it. Yeah. Which is how a lot of those artifacts and, you know, just incredible, amazing pieces of art and codices and all this stuff, how all those mm -hmm. things ended up back in Europe, right? Yeah. And they would suddenly turn up in various centuries, and people would be like, huh, this is probably from whatever place, whatever time. <laughs> how did it get here? Nobody mm -hmm. knows, right? Um, but, you know, clearly there were people, despite the fact that certain areas of, right, the Spanish... Inquisition, really. We're trying to burn everything in sight. There were other people who were definitely valued it. But yes, right, their version was very much like, we have found a civilization that we can Christianize. And England and France didn't, right, they went to a different part of the Americas. So where they showed up, for the most part, they didn't see cities quite like they knew at home, right? They saw a vastly different social structure. So they really did kind of view this land as something that needs to be taken and tamed and right all of those metaphors yeah. that we sort of learn um but yeah so the justifications are a little bit different um in some ways 
the French, right, and the English with the Enlightenment. The idea that simultaneously you're coming up with things that sort of say everybody's equal while you are also colonizing and starting the slave trade. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, those things, to be justified, both of those things simultaneously, you have to view the people you are subjugating as less than. Right. And that is definitely one of the places we get part of the origin, right, of, of modern racism mm -hmm. as it exists in the United States and North America, North America generally. Racism has always existed, and it absolutely exists in, like, Central South America, right, as well. But this aspect of it, um, the Caribbean, right, as it exists throughout the areas that sort of France and England colonized, really becomes something that has been justified in relation to the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So that, which is sort of extra horrifying. I did also want to say, as we sort of get into um, some of the things that are going on, that the New World does actually still have cities, right? So um, they may not be built out of quite the same stone and so on that um, some of the Mesoamerican or South American cities are, um, but they do exist and there absolutely is, there is stone, right? There's plenty of wood, there's extraordinary structures, there's tons of, right, yeah. um, mounds. Um, and... Some of these things, right, people are trying to explore. The problem is, of course, that, um, you know, restoration is difficult when you've, when people have been building modern cities over, yeah. right? But one of the, the big ones, Cahokia, right? Uh, so the, um, which is across the Mississippi from modern St. Louis. Yeah. It was a thriving city, sort of circa 1050 to 1350, right? So 300 years. Um, smack in the middle of the high middle ages, right? So this is, this is in North America. So I think people are more accustomed to thinking that North America, of course, did have an incredible culture, but just not sort of the permanent remains. This isn't true either, right? There are permanent remains. There are plenty of permanent remains. And there, this giant city, you know, absolutely. There are archaeologists digging up parts of it and finding all the same things you find when you dig up, you know, the Greek islands, mm -hmm. looking for Minoan culture yeah. or whatever it is, right? So, the the size, just to give a sample of the size, right, that at its peak in the early 13th century, so probably around 1200 or so, um, when London had about 25,000 people, uh, London hit 40,000 to 50,000 people by 1340, around the time um, Cahokia fell or disappeared. And at its height, Cahokia probably had about 40,000 people. Right. So okay. long before London had that many people, <laughs> or at least, you know, about a hundred years before London had that many people. In the 1790 census in the New World, so-called, right? So the most populous city was New York. This is, of course, the U.S. census, <laughs> the first U.S. census, right? Um, 1790. So, you know, we're just talking the tiny part of North America that was the United States at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, by that, so you know, the Eurocentric cities of the time, right? New York has always been the biggest city. And in 1790, this is just Manhattan, right? We don't have all the other boroughs yet. They're not all the same city. Um, Brooklyn is a separate city for a very long time. Um, but at the time, Manhattan has about 33,000 people. I guess the census said 33,131 people. Um, by 1800, New York had 60,514 people. So... That's how long it takes for New York to have, you know, that many more people. Philly, Philadelphia, 
um, had about 41,220 people by 1800. Mm-hmm. That's 600 years after Cahokia had about the same number of people. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is just sort of as an example, as we think of the new world and the history of, right, the United States of America, where we are sitting, and the ways in which the culture existed, right, to imagine or to teach, right? First of all, thinking of it as the quote-unquote new world. <laughs> it's not new. It was yeah. it was old. You know, it was just as old as everything else. You know, um, I mean, Africa's the oldest when it comes to people, obviously. But otherwise, pretty much everybody else is about the same. And obviously, um, <laughs> you know, the idea that somehow, even if, first of all, cities are, of course, a Eurocentric way of thinking of civilization, mm-hmm. right? Civilization itself comes from the Latin for citizen, right? Okay, I can see that. But if we think, yeah, but you know, even if, so that is a Eurocentric way to look at things. But that being said, cities absolutely existed. Right. Throughout the Americas, giant cities, cities that were bigger than a lot of what Europe was at the time. Right. So they absolutely did exist. Um, and then, of course, right, we have to look at culture outside of just cities. But that also means things like trade. Right. Um, what about art? These are the th- ways we yeah. sort of look at culture. Um, so evidence of metalworking exists. Um, Cahokia is one of the is the only place I think it this point where they've actually found um, a copper workshop, right? Like a metalworking copper workshop. And there are copper plates, gorgeous copper plates, right? That exist sort of throughout the Midwest and also the Southeast. So as far as Florida, um, and a lot of those plates probably came Hmm. from this workshop where they created this sort of these gorgeous things, but the copper itself probably came from the Great Lakes, right? So you've got the trade networks. That's how we sort of view culture, right? And then, of course, the metalworking, um, they make sort of, they're these beautiful representations of sort of um, birds, avian imagery, as they say, right? So like raptors, um, also warriors. You know, yeah. that was one of the things that, I don't know why it surprised me. Um, there was a big aviary in Tenochtitlan oh, when yeah. uh, Cortez yes. arrived. I was mm-hmm. like, that's like a that's like a yeah. zoo. That's just like the city that I live yep. in, you know? Absolutely. I was yeah. like, huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right. Exactly. We think of, we sort of know, right? Like Rome collected animals from all the places they went. So like they knew what an alligator was and all this yeah. stuff. Well, actually crocodile because the American, allig- they're all crocodilians, but alligators only exist in the Americas. <laughs> so, all right. So crocodiles okay. from Egypt. Anyway, but yeah, so uh, Rome made a habit of collecting animals sort of everywhere they went. Um, but of course, cu- this is something many cultures have done. And birds, you know, bird catchers have been a thing, you know, since long before they showed up in the magic flute um, around the world. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but they show up in, of course, Japanese culture and plays as well. In fact, yeah, right. There's a, a huge... Um, industry everywhere behind it. And I mean, you know, birds in South America are incredible and gorgeous. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But absolutely, right? So, um, and of course, birds are always highly symbolic. Everywhere, they're highly symbolic. You know, the U.S. still mm-hmm. uses the eagle, right? <laughs> um, and we have eagles, of course. But eagle, of course, Rome used the eagle, right? Um, Zeus, the eagle. Yep. So, 
Um, so bird imagery. My favorite fact about that is when you have ever seen an eagle yeah. and they play that noise that goes, yes. ah! that's a red-tailed <laughs> right. hawk. Yeah, yeah. It's like on the, the opening of the Colbert Report yes. every yes. night. Because eagles themselves make like really funny little yes. noises. Yes. He talked about that once, though. I think he actually did a thing on it. Where he was like, but of course it has to because, you know, yeah, you know, the stereotype of, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm glad he would yes, call that out. Yes. Um, but that sort of sense, right, that uh, this imagery, right? So the importance of this imagery sort of exists yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, but so the sort of the copper work um, and then also with copper, um, as well as other materials, they made these little masks they're known as long-nosed god maskets because they're these little masks. So hmm. masket, you know, with E-T-T-E, like a little mask. Because it's little. But okay. they're probably gods, right? And they have these long noses. And they're these sort of very interesting figurines. Um, of course, there's stone statuary and pottery, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've just brought up, right, is that um, if you're going to teach about the Middle Ages, first of all, right, it should be understood that this is a sort of global term and that the americas absolutely have one <laughs> there's tons of incredible yeah. stuff going on here and you can look at um at the, these copper sort of bird figures or warrior figures and compare them sort of directly to old english metalworking that frequently looks very similar the bird imagery can be very similar um mm -hmm. and but the thing hmm. to be sure right when you're teaching is not to say how are these sort of mississippian figures like the old English figures. No, you say, all right, how are each of these cultures looking at birds and bird imagery? How are each of them using metalworking? Why is this important? Why are these art um, artifacts important? How is bird imagery used? Why is it important to these cultures? Right? So that you put them sort of next to each other, you do some comparing, but one of them like, for example, the old English one, is not viewed as somehow the quote-unquote original or the, right, basic version for the interpretation, right? Right. But, you know, it's it's a really sort of important thing to do to shift because we're so used to the idea. You go to a museum, of course, you see Greek pottery everywhere, right? <laughs> um, and then there might be an exhibit. Um, this was last summer. The Cycladic Museum in Athens had this brilliant exhibit that was I loved that was Picasso's work next to all this sort of Cycladic Minoan art that he had taken all this inspiration of. Right. So of course, like the Minotaur, the bull and the Minotaur and that imagery um, was something that, you know, he used a lot. And, yeah. you know, so his figures put next to those figures or sort of his idea of sort of the muses, right. Put next to the, you know, original <laughs> in this case, right. Figures. Yeah. And sometimes I was, you know, I, spent forever i went to this exhibit a number of times and i spent a lot of time there um, and occasionally people would come up and like they'd look at them and they wouldn't be sure which was the one that was like thousands of years old and which was picasso's <laughs> right which is sort of a tribute yeah. to both of them i guess if you think about it that way yeah i mean like one thing that i really had not ever realized mm -hmm. until um i went to monet's house in mm -hmm. giverney is the extent to which the impressionists were uh, influenced by like the Yukioe yes from um, yes. Japan, yeah. and then like it wasn't until after that trip that I found copies that uh, Van Gogh had made mm -hmm. of some of the some of the 
prints, mm. which I find like really interesting because he also tried to copy like the Japanese yeah. text. And you can sort of, if you look at them side by side, you can see he's sort of doing right. his best. Um, <laughs> but he but, doesn't know it. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it is yes. something that um, really doesn't get mm-hmm. talked about yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, and this is, it's a really, really important thing because, of course, the first of all, the same thing is true. I mean, Native American imagery has also influenced artists. But secondly, um, the idea that you can put these things in conversation. So we have no doubt that, you know, Cycladic and Minoan art is worthy of being put in conversation with Picasso. We have no doubt that it influenced him, right? But you look at mm-hmm. their other places. We'll, we'll sort of talk about Africa next time. But um, African art, the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia we'll probably talk about next time because they have done this. Oh, yeah. I've been yes. to that museum. That's that's a yeah. good example. Yeah. Um, but this idea that there are places, specifically really the Americas and Africa, um, where – as well as, right, sort of other island cultures, right, the Pacific Islands, various island cultures um, – where, first of all, um, we don't necessarily think of their art as being in the same category, um, even though it frequently has influenced plenty of artists, um, we may not think of it as being appropriate to sort of put Native American art next to Old English art. Um, I do think this is changing. I mean, I think our mindsets are changing. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea that you would go to exhibit where, like, these things could have been made at the same time, basically, right? Um, what is this about bird imagery? What are we looking at, right? Bird imagery from around the world. Um that all of these things are of equal value. Um, that is something yeah. that we still have to sort of learn, partly just because I think particularly in the case of the Americas, we have to know that it exists, right? We're, we're just so mm-hmm. far behind what we teach about the Americas, really, right? Um, so I was going to say, I really want to mention this, so I'm going to. Um, <laughs> uh, one culture that people may not have heard of who are listening um, are the, the Mochi. And this is um, before the Inca, right? Um, at around the same time as the Nazca, so who are southern Peru, and the Mochi are northern Peru. Um, the Mo- Nazca being famous for the yes. line drawings, right? Um, and of course, geoglyphs exist around the world as well. Also, for example, in England, right? Mm-hmm. So geoglyphs. The long yeah. man, is that what yes, he's called? Yes, famously. Yes, and he gets a regular <laughs> polishing and everything to keep him going, yeah. Um, yeah. But this idea, yes. So the, the Nazca lines, right, uh, geoglyphs generally are something that exists, you know. So again, that's obviously something to think about. Um, the Mochi specifically had an incredible culture. Um, they are... So, you know, pottery, textiles, metalworking. Um, but one of the things that they are extremely famous for. <laughs> um, and by the way, the, the Inca are sort of the 13th century to basically 1572, right? They get stuffed out by the Spanish. Um, so we have that. They're still around, obviously. They're not gone. I mean, there are plenty of their descendants around, but that is the date that we sort of give as the end of their reign right over their territory, 1572. Um, but early from the early 13th century, um, the Mochi are before this, they're sort of 100 to 600 or 700. So they're, um, they're earlier and, um, they're most famous really, <laughs> um, for these pots that they made that are very sexually explicit. Um, so this pottery yep. and there are some pictures of this on Wikipedia, yes. oh, yes. by the way, if, yes. if you, <laughs> and I love this, 
we'll you probably link to it, it with a note yeah. as well. But um, I love them. Yeah. But one of the f- really fun things about this, of course, is that this is a great reminder that, again, all cultures do this, right? Um, and so, for example, in medieval Europe, um, you know, a few hundred years after this, um, there will be frescoes and marginalia of what are known as, for example, phallus trees, trees full of phalli, mm-hmm. where you see people okay. picking the phalli like fruit, um, or there's like a famous one with a nun with a basket full of phalli. Um, anyway, so, and of course, I think, you know, it depends if you've done medieval courses, maybe as a graduate student, maybe not as an undergraduate, um, <laughs> you have run into possibly certain French medieval texts that are body, right? The French aren't the only ones, of course, but they, you know, they were known for it then, as I suppose they still are now. That is a stereotype about the French. Um, and there's also um, Ibn Daniel, we've mentioned before, I think, with his shadow puppets um, that mm-hmm. are, <laughs> you know, triple X rated, absolutely. Um, so, but this idea, right, that this is usually, it's a, it can be so many things, right? It can be a satire, a cultural commentary, um, you know, it can be about fertility, but frequently it probably isn't. Frequently it's probably about a lot of other things, right? It's much more of a social yeah. commentary. Um, it's just that we're so used to being in a puritanic age, and by we, and now I really do mean, right, places that were, you know, specifically North America, yeah. Yeah. You know, people who, I can't remember who said it, but there's some famous lines of, like, Australians saying, you know, at least we got the convicts. Um, because the, yeah. <laughs> the British who settled North America brought with them some very distinct religious views from which we still definitely kind of suffer. And the fear of sexuality is one of them. Um, but this is a tremendous part of European culture as well, obviously, right? Um, so that's another one of those moments when it can, you know, a teaching sort of, right, section <laughs> on... Um, these images sort of, you know, in various places and what they mean and what they're about, um, that can be a really sort of important aspect of, again, right, shifting our mindset about what different cultures did or didn't do, what was and wasn't acceptable, all of that stuff, right? Um, and again, of course, just reminding us how much culture absolutely existed in the Americas. Um, I had been going to finish up with books, <laughs> which again are very Eurocentric, the idea that things have to be written down. They don't, right? We have to learn how to accept oral culture, right? Um, and also music and painting and drawing and sculpture and all of these other things, right? Mm-hmm. That have been around so much longer, right? Writing is only about 8,000 years old, right? The earliest musical instruments that we have, that we actually have, right? Our flutes that are at least 40,000 years old, um, sculptures that are 40,000 wow. years old. Yeah, right? I mean, and you imagine if we have a flute that's 40,000 years old, something probably existed before that we just don't have. You know, even bone doesn't last forever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But sculptures are 40,000 years old. Cave paintings, of course, 44,000. And engraved stones, so stones that have been sort of engraved and marked on in various ways, um, probably, and this is, you know, but probably go at least back about 250,000 years. So people evolved about 350,000 years ago. You know, this is pretty... So there's a big a big blank spot where we don't necessarily have any any idea of what yes. was going on. Yeah. Then. So writing, um, you know, the idea that writing somehow always has to be central is a bad way to look at things, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, 
you know, and of course, particularly writing doesn't necessarily last. I mean, manuscripts, papyrus, mm-hmm. you know, these things don't. Um, but that being said, of course, there are famous, famous, famous codices from the Americas. Um, some mm-hmm. of them are post are post colonial, right? Uh, but some of them are definitely pre colonial. I believe. Um, so, like, I think probably I don't know how many of these are. The Popol Vuh. Yeah. And I oh. really apologize. I'm saying that wrong. Was oral tradition for a really long time and then finally got mm-hmm. written down in the year 1500. Yes. Yeah. And some things are written down. So, of course, this is a problem, right? Some things we know were written down because there was a fear sort of, you know, that colonists were going to destroy everything. Um, or yeah. also to maybe to demonstrate to colonists that these things were important. At the same time, of course, because the colonists, right, so, you know, the Spanish, basically, uh, because they destroyed so much stuff, they burned it, they just destroyed so much stuff, it can also be very hard to know to what extent there were earlier manuscripts of a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. codices, really, yeah. codices, right? Manuscript is something specific. But yeah, um, and that's a huge problem. Right. And things occasionally show up. So some of the Maya codices that have shown up, <laughs> um, it's not really clear for some of them how they got to Europe, for example. Um, and that's what I said about, you know, clearly some of them were sort of saved and sent over by people who valued them. Yeah. And these had to be, presumably, right, the exact same Spanish who were part of the culture where they were being burned. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. Some people clearly did value the codices for whatever reasons and didn't want them burned and sent them, you know, home, basically. But um, I feel like the introduction to one of my um, translations of the Popolva mentions, like, someone in the congregation who had a really close relationship with the priest who, like, showed him the the written manuscript... Um, yeah. Well, there are a number, but like that, you know that, and that they trusted the priest also not to destroy it in that in that situation. There are some famous um, Spanish priests or monks who um, who did not believe in the sort of genocide that was going on, and who did, you know, believe mm-hmm. in saving some of the culture. So that absolutely did exist, um, but. You know, essentially the codices that we still have, right, are particularly, we know that the, the Maya did tons of writing and we have, they also didn't just write on codices, yeah. but also sort of, you know, on pots and stones and, you know, so lots of written records from them. Um, of course, Aztec, right, um, codices and records, um, the codices are mostly right after colonization, but, and then the Mishtec as well. So, you know, there there is a lot of variation in the written material, but there is also, you know, there's some other interesting things. So, for example, um, right, because I also teach theater, so um, there's a Mayan dance drama, the Rabino Laki, um, Man from Rabinal is what it means, Warrior from Rabinal, um, and the Rabina Led mm-hmm. is one of the, so this is Mayan, um, but this is particularly an area, um, basically the, the Keshe, what are now sort of all, right, the Keshe people, but at the time were more subdivided. And um, it's a pre-colonial dance drama, but got written down after colonization. And that, it's unclear <laughs> why that lasted. 
somehow they sort hmm. of managed to keep it quiet enough. Also, they produced it on days that belonged to Catholic saints, like St. Paul. Hmm. And the when you see sure. pictures of it, it's very clear the ways in which both, right, the their um, sort of celebration of St. Paul has clearly traditional Mayan elements, but then a lot of that imagery has also, right, been re-imported into their production of the play. So there's this kind of meshing of these, right? And so the, the Spanish maybe didn't really notice or felt that it was Catholic enough that they wanted to leave it alone. It's a little unclear, right? Um, but it mm-hmm. did last, so it still exists, and there are, there have been, you know, translations. Um, there's another very interesting version, Soruana, um, who, of course, is Spanish, but born, raised, died in Mexico, but of Spanish descent. Um, and she writes what has become a very, very famous um, prologue to a play that is not as famous. <laughs> the play is The mm-hmm. Divine Narcissus. It's about Jesus as Narcissus, you know, the metaphor of Jesus, Narcissus, or whatever. Okay. But, uh, but this is the prologue, the loa. To the Divine Narcissus is what's known as. Okay, so the the prologue, essentially, to this play. And it is itself a dance drama that she has attempted to model after Aztec dance dramas. And it's... They were outlawed. They are absolutely outlawed. (laughs) You couldn't do one. So it's unclear if she could ever have seen one or how she really knew much about them. But she clearly knew at least something about them. Enough to sort of know that they existed and a little bit what they would have been like as dance dramas, which was different from, of course, the European tradition she's more familiar with. Um, and it's also unclear if she thought that her play could be produced as a dance drama, which is to say that because she was writing it to sort of try and convince people that Catholicism and this is also interesting, that there was um, a lot of overlap between Catholicism um, and the Aztec religion. It, this is basically the point of her play, that they actually see each thing, see things very similarly. Mm-hmm. But did she really expect it to be produced as a dance drama, given that dance dramas were illegal? But did she think her play, because it was a Catholic dance drama... <laughs> that also included an Aztec dance drama, did she think that her play could be produced that way? Um, There are a lot of things that are interesting about this play. Not least of which, it's basically a four-character play, um, and it's it's an allegory. So we have um, Occident and America. Um, America, of course, is an Aztec queen, essentially, lady. Um, And Mm -hmm. Occident is an Aztec warrior. And then there's religion and zeal. Religion is a Spanish lady, and zeal is a conquistador. Um, okay. Yeah, and religion basically stops zeal from um, probably raping America. There's a sort of battle scene, <laughs> and religion steps in oh. before, you know, and says, you know, we can do this peacefully. Um, which is also a reminder, of course, that Sarwana, even though she's Spanish, is also a woman, and had maybe a slightly more realistic view colonization than you might expect, even though she also definitely believes with a Christianizing mission. But yeah, it's a sort of interesting, <laughs> it's a very interesting um, reminder of the ways in which when she is in Mexico, she absolutely views this as the West, not in the way we view the West, Occident, right? <laughs> she views Occident, the West, the way 
we have historically viewed Orient or the East, right? As something that is different <laughs> and strange, right? It's the West that is different and strange. Yeah. So that alone, right? The way we've shifted our mindset to be like West, America's our West, and that means Europe, <laughs> you know, um, this is a mindset yeah. that has not always existed and therefore can definitely shift back a little bit, right? Yeah. But yeah. Cool. All right. We'll save our other examples. Okay. For next time to go with Asia. So yeah. So next time we'll talk about the Middle Ages yep. in Africa and Asia and maybe talk a little bit more about nonverbal yes. and nonwritten communication. All right. Cool. Well, <laughs> what were our, what are my final things? Yes. So. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. We have an Ask a Medievalist Facebook group. If you're interested in getting an announcement whenever we put up a new episode, um, you can say hi to us there. You can say hi to us on our website at askamedievalist.com. And we have a feedback form as well. Uh, if you ask a question, uh, you will probably hear it addressed on an upcoming episode. We're on Twitter, too. We don't tweet that much, but we do announce our episodes. So lots of good ways to get uh, get in touch with us or just follow along. And we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, we are always excited to uh, yes. hear what's going on. And uh, I think that's all. I think that's what we got. Uh, as if that weren't enough. <laughs> I think we're good. So yeah, until next time, everybody... Stay socially distant and wash your hands and uh, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 